Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. We're starting a new series today at Summit Church called Questions Jesus Asked. And so we're just going to be walking through some of the questions that he asked throughout Scripture. And I would encourage you, this is going to be a series I think is going to be good for you to bring some of your friends uh, maybe some friends who have, are not sure about God, not sure about church. Uh, and, and a great invite is this one. It's out in the lobby. So take some with you. Invite your friends. Invite your coworkers. And, uh, and I don't want this to sound weird, but the number of uh, salvations we have in our church are directly proportionate to the number of guests we have in our church. So when we stop inviting our friends, we stop seeing people getting, getting saved. And so if we want to continue to be a soul-winning church, I want to encourage you, continue to invite your friends to, to come and join us here at church. So take advantage of that as well. Invite your friends to this series. Um, you know, throughout Scripture, we see Jesus uh, was asked 183 questions, but he asked over 300 questions. So what we see is he answered a lot less questions than he asked and questions can be dangerous sometimes because you don't always know the answer to the question. You might be asking a question, you don't know what they're going to say. My oldest daughter, Abby, um, she's uh, going to be going to college in the fall, and uh, I'm so proud of her. And she, uh, a while back, she came to me, she said, Dad, I don't think I can be on the worship team anymore in the auditorium. And I said, I'll come. And she said, well, if I feel called to be in kids' ministry, then I just, I don't want to waste any time on stage. I want to be back in a kids' ministry. And b- by the way, I know I'm unobjectively her father, but I'm so proud of her because how many people would say, I don't want to be on the stage so I can go back with the kids, right? But I'm proud of her for that. Anyway, so there was a few weeks ago, she, uh, we were riding home after church and uh, said, how was, how was your class today? And she said, it was good. And she said, uh, we were doing a lesson and we asked the question, what are some things that we drink? And kids were saying, milk and soda. And one kid raised his hands, the second and third grade group, and he said, whiskey. Do, do you drink whiskey, little boy? What's your parents' names? Let's read this. <laughs> well, when you ask a question, you don't know what the response is going to be. It can be dangerous, right? Um, attorneys know in a trial setting, you never ask a question that you haven't prepared to ask because you want to know what the answer is going to be. And it would have been so much safer for Jesus to, to make statements instead of ask questions. But he was asking questions because there's something powerful about the answer. There's something powerful about us responding. He knows what the answer is already. But there's something powerful about us verbalizing that answer, getting that answer out in the world. Because Jesus doesn't need to hear our answer, he knows the answer. But sometimes we need to hear our answer. We need to hear the words come out of our mouth of what the answer is. And I think that's one of the reasons he did this, because our words are powerful. And one of the verses that I quote regularly, you might not even realize I'm quoting, is Romans 10, 9. And it says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And we say that typically at the end of our worship experience. Um, but there's something powerful about not just believing something, but confessing something, saying it out loud with your mouth. It, it, it stirs something up in us. It helps us understand who we really are, what we really believe. And that's part of why it's important for us to answer the questions that, that Jesus is asking. 
So today we're going to spend most of our time in John chapter 21. And John chapter 21 takes place in this period between the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ into heaven. So Jesus has been crucified, he's been buried, he's resurrected, and there's a 40-day period between his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. And, uh, and this is this time in between. So John chapter 21 happens here, and it's probably a few days before the ascension of Christ. And it's this, it's this kind of awkward period for the disciples. They know Jesus is alive, but they're not fully engaged with what's going on. They're not totally sure about what's next for them. So they've got some questions about the future. They've got some questions about tomorrow. And I'm sure there are many people in this room that, that feel the same way. I'm not sure what tomorrow holds or what the future holds. And so the disciples, many of them do what they had done before they followed Jesus. They went fishing. And Peter was a natural leader. And so he told the disciples, he says, I'm going fishing. I'm bored. Let's go fishing. And so seven disciples, Peter and six others, they, they get in a boat and they go out to go fishing. And they fished all night and they caught nothing. And verse 4 of John chapter 21 says this, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So imagine if you were a seasoned professional fisherman, a group of you are in the boat, you fished all night, haven't caught anything, and some dude is on the shore and he says, you got anything? No. The fish are on the other side of the boat. Throw them out on the other side. They're hiding from you. How ridiculous does this sound? Right? Oh, I had no idea. Throw it on the other side. And I probably would have mocked this guy a little bit, let's be honest. I probably would have made fun of him. There's no way I would have actually done it. I'd have been like, who does he think he is? I'm the professional fisherman, and this joker thinks they're on this. No, it's not going to happen. Thankfully, that's not what the disciples did. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So sure enough, the fish were hiding on the other side of the boat. This is interesting. Verse 7 says, That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, let me stop there. The reason the writer of John, the Apostle John, says it was the one whom Jesus loved said it is because it was John who said it. So it's like your, your children saying, well, his favorite child is going with him when they're talking about themselves. John could say that about the one who Jesus loved because he was talking about himself. So the one who Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So they recognize at this moment it's Jesus. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had stripped for work. He had taken off his outer garment. He threw himself into the sea, and he swam to the shore. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards off. So they recognize it's Jesus. Peter goes, man, and he grabs his shirt, he puts, and he jumps in the water, and he's swimming to shore. This is Peter to the max, right? He's impetuous, he's, he's strong-willed, and he just jumps in. He swims to shore. He's getting out of the water dripping wet, and they pull up to the, to the shore. And then in verse 9, it says this. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out and bread. Now, this doesn't seem like a significant verse, but, but I love this. 
Because what we see is they, they come to the shore and Jesus had a fire ready for them, a charcoal fire ready for them. He had some fish cooking and he had some bread prepared. Now bread isn't something you just went and bought out of the store. You had to prepare it. You had to make it. You had to take some time. Now I don't know if Jesus actually made the bread or someone made it for him. He purchased whatever, but he had to go to the trouble of getting the bread and providing it. Now I want you to hear this. The disciples were in the boat looking for fish. They didn't find any. They spent all night looking. And they didn't find what they were looking for. And when they get to the shore, Jesus is waiting on them, and he's got what they need. He's been preparing it. He was waiting on them to get there so that he could give them breakfast, give them the fish, give them the bread that they needed, that they were looking for. And this is what I want you to hear. So many of us work and strive so hard to accumulate and get things that we think we need that's gonna fulfill us and make us happy. If I can just get this, if I can just make it to there, if, my, if we can buy that house, if we can, whatever it might be. And what we don't recognize is that, that Jesus already has everything we need in our lives. He's waiting for us. If we'll just stop working and trying to figure it out on our own and simply submit our hearts to him, he's got everything we need. He's waiting for us, preparing it for the right moment. See, they're looking for fish, but Jesus already had the fish cooking. You're, you're looking for a miracle, but Jesus already has your miracle in the preparation stage. He's getting it ready for you. If you'll just stop looking for the right answer and start looking for Jesus. Verse 10 says this. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So he says, bring some more fish over, I'm gonna cook some more. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Now, again, this is not crucial to this message, but I don't wanna, I don't wanna move forward without us getting this portion of it. Now, there's nothing significant about 153 fish. There's, it's not a magic number. There's nothing like that. But what we see is whenever they took the fish to market, they counted the fish. And so 153 was probably a significant number for that time. So that's why they noted it. But what we see here is it says, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. And what it's implying is this, that in the natural, we would have said, that net's going to tear if you have so many fish in it. That, that net is going to be useless. You're going to ruin your net, and you're going to lose your catch. So in the natural, we would have said, don't bother trying to catch that many fish. You probably need to aim a little lower. Because the capacity of that net will prevent you from catching that amount of fish. And I'm telling you, there are people, I believe, sitting in this room that are watching online, that are listening to this message right now, that, that God has put a dream or a vision in your heart. He's begun to maybe give you a, a glimpse of something he wants you to be a part of or do. And for some reason, something in your past, something in your own heart has said, no, 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 the net's not big enough. Now, we, we can't try to do that because if I do, it's probably not gonna work out anyway. The net will tear and then everything's gonna fall apart. So you know what? Why even try? I don't wanna be disappointed some voice from your past, some experience you've had has said, no, 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 the net's gonna tear. So don't even bother. And what I want you to hear is this. 
you've focused so much on the capacity of your net that you failed to recognize the capacity of God. Because God's capacity is not contingent on the net's capacity. God says, hey, I can hold that net together so I can give you a supernatural return on, this, on these fish. I can give you more than you can expect to get in the natural if you'll just trust me. And I'm telling you today, there's some of you, you've trusted your eyes, you've trusted your senses, you've trusted your experiences more than you trust God's capacity in your life. And I'm telling you today, God's plan is never about our capacity, but always about his capacity. So we need to stop living our lives according to what we feel comfortable in doing. What's our capacity? What can we do? And dream about, God, what do you want to do? And then trust him in that. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of his disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them so, that, uh, so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus revealed, was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Verse 15, and when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And parenthetically, in verse 19, it says, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Let me just tease out a couple things from this passage before we move on. Obviously, the question that we're going to look at that Jesus asked was, do you love me? And this is a key question. It's an important question for each of us to be able to answer this and respond to this. But before you do, let me walk through this with you. This was a question that was important for Peter because of his context, because of the background, which we're going to get into in just a second. This was an uncomfortable question for Peter because of some of the stuff he'd been through and some of the things he had done. And he responds, yes, Lord, right? Yes, of course. One of the things that's interesting is that Jesus doesn't call him Peter because Jesus had actually changed his name. He said, no longer are you Simon, but you'll now be called Peter for you're a rock. And so here he doesn't call him Peter. He calls him Simon, son of John. Now this is a very formal way to address Peter, who was somebody he was very intimate with and close with. In fact, some scholars actually believe that Jesus and Peter didn't speak in the Aramaic in this passage, but they actually spoke in the Greek, which would have made the, the level of formalism even higher. It would have been a very formal conversation for them to have, which makes it even more awkward at this point. What we see is after the third question, it says Peter was grieved. And this word grieved just means sorrowful. He was brokenhearted. He was sad because Jesus was questioning his love. Now, I don't know if he was sad because Jesus wasn't sure how much Peter loved him. Um, I'm not sure if he was sad because Peter maybe recognized because of my past, there's some question about this now. 
We don't see explicitly, what we see is Peter's heart was sorrowful because of these questions. And then what we see at the end, he, he describes this moment that Peter doesn't understand, but it's foreshadowing to the way Peter will die. Peter is gonna be crucified. History tells us that he was actually crucified upside down. Now we don't know that for sure, for certain, but history indicates that he was the least crucified, but probably upside down. And if this was the case, this is foreshadowing. Um, when you're young, you dressed yourself, you went where you wanted to go. When you're old, someone leads you where you don't want to go. You're going to stretch out your hands. That's what it's talking about. And then finally, he says this to Peter. After all this, do you love me? Do you love me? If you really love me, this is how this is going to go for you. And then he says, follow me. And this reminds me of what Jesus says in John 14, 15. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And for us, sometimes we get this flipped around and we think, if, if I can just keep the commandments of Jesus, then I can prove my love to Jesus. So I'm gonna work really hard to just be moral. And when I'm moral, then I will earn the love of Jesus. And that is not what this is talking about. It's, it's actually quite the opposite. When I love Jesus wholeheartedly, when I'm submitted to him, when my heart is committed to him, what happens is uh, I naturally fall into alignment to his commandments. I begin to do what he wants me to do because my heart begins to look like his, because I love him. We tend, we tend to resemble the things we love the most. <laughs> That's why old couples, they start to look like each other a little bit. They start to say some of the same things. Now, there's no old couples in here. We've got some veterans in here, but we don't have any old couples in here. But after somebody's been together a long time, they kind of go together because we resemble the things we love. And so what we see is this, that it's not about saying, okay, I'm gonna follow Jesus and prove my love, but it's about saying, man, I love Jesus so much, I'm gonna follow him. I'm gonna do what he's asking me to do. Because true love isn't true love if action isn't associated with it. It doesn't matter how much I say I love Jesus, if I'm unwilling to do what Jesus has asked me to do, I don't really love him. But Mel, I go to church, okay. But Mel, I, I put some money in the offering box, great. But are you doing what Jesus has asked you to do? Is your heart taking you to the place where you're submitted to his commandments, where you're following him? Because that's what he's asking us to do. So if you're a note taker, I've got good news for you. Like every good sermon that's ever been written, I've got three points for you today. I had five really important things to tell you, but I had to get rid of two because good sermons only have three points. So, I'm just kidding. I got three points, and uh, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. It's on the Version Bible app as well, in the notes on the events section. Uh, but the first thing I would tell you is this. The first thing we see from this interaction is that Jesus challenges Peter's pride. Because he asked the question in verse 15, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these guys love me? And it sounds like a weird question, especially if you don't understand the context. Because it's not a competition. Jesus isn't trying to see who loves me the most, but he's going back to this moment, back in Mark chapter 14. This is following the Last Supper. Judas has left already to betray Christ. And he's there, Jesus is there with the 11 disciples and they're having a conversation and Jesus says, you are all going to fall away. He tells all the disciples, you're all going to fall away. And Peter in verse 29 says to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, 
Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And you would think that Peter would have gone, seriously? Wow. But not Peter. He said emphatically. He, he doubled down. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the others said the same. Everybody agreed. That's right. We're with him. We're never going to leave you. We will die with you, Jesus. Right? This is this moment. And if you know scripture, you know how this goes. This is what makes this almost comical. But let's think about it for a second. How many times have we been in a church service or a small group or whatever it might be, and, and we have a moment where we go, yeah, I'll do anything for Jesus. I'll do it. And then it's time to do anything for Jesus, and we go, ooh. We're not in our Love Song Lie series anymore, but if we were, a great song for today would be the Meatloaf classic, I Would Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That. <laughs> Right? This sounds great. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. And I'm imagining some guy who's like, I don't want to take out the trash, right? Like, it's conditional. And so what we see here is, is Jesus is challenging Peter's pride, and he's saying, Peter, do you really love me more than these? Because what you said, what you said was, Hey, all these, they're going to fail you, but not me, Jesus. And what he's implying is, I love you more than these guys love you. These guys are going to fail you, but not me. I'm your boy. So Jesus asks him. And now it sounds pointed, doesn't it? It sounds direct. It sounds mean. But I want you to hear this. Jesus isn't trying to, to crush Peter. He's trying to correct Peter. And when Jesus corrects us, he corrects us to restore us. He never corrects us to humiliate us. He never does it simply to punish us. He always does it to restore us. And, and P, Jesus does this with Peter publicly because Peter made this confession publicly. So all the disciples heard Peter say, these guys will fail you, but I won't. And they all saw Peter fail him. And so Jesus wanted to take this opportunity to say, hey, he failed publicly, so I'm gonna restore him publicly. He, he, he blew it in a big way and said, so you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna make sure I'm restoring him. I'm correcting him. I'm correcting his pride, but I'm gonna restore him in a public way because that's the heart of Christ because Jesus is challenging Peter's pride not to squash him, but to restore him. The second thing is this. Jesus challenges Peter's love and I put love in quotations, his love. Because it's interesting, when you look at the language, Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter says, I love you. In the Greek, Jesus is saying, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter's saying, yes, Jesus, I phileo you. Now, since we're in the Lent season, some of you now, whenever you hear phileo, all you can think of is fish. You're thinking like, phileo fish? Yes, yes, Jesus, I receive that. Phileo fish, yes. <laughs> okay, so they're both saying the word love, but they're saying two different versions of love. Now, to be honest with you, uh, many scholars will tell you that these words many times were used synonymously because there's so much overlap between the two words in the Greek. Um, 
The strictest standard would say that what Jesus was saying, agape, is the word used for the love of God. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that's, that's uh, intentional. It's a love that's inconvenient. It's a love that, that it's not about our feeling. It's about the effort. We're, we're going to love no matter what. It's unconditional. And, and what Peter was saying, phileo, uh, it, it's a brotherly love. It's Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. That's where we get this word. So the, phileo means brotherly love. And so Jesus was saying, do you agape me? And Peter was saying, yes, I phileo you. And I can't explain this fully, but what we see is the third time he asks, he changes it and says, do you phileo me? And he says, yes, Jesus, I phileo you. But what we see so often is Jesus is asking a question that we're not answering. Jesus is saying, do you phileo, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? And Peter's saying, Jesus, I love you like a brother. And what happens is we feel good because Jesus is saying, hey, do you love me unconditionally? Do you love me even if I don't answer your prayer the way you want me to? Do you love me even if you don't get the raise or the promotion? Do you love me even if your kids are giving you troubles? Do you love me even if there's a problem in your marriage? Do you love me even if? Because many times our love is conditional. We go, well, Jesus, you're awesome when I get the raise. You're awesome when... Uh, you know, I, we get this or do this or whatever. When everything falls into place, you're fantastic. We love you. And Jesus isn't asking, do you love me when things are good? He's saying, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? And, and that's a hard thing to ask. That's an even harder thing to answer. Because the standard of love that Jesus is inviting us into is much higher than I think most of us realize. There's a passage in Luke chapter 14, and this is Jesus talking, okay? This is Jesus talking, and he says this in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And if you skip down to verse 33, it says, so therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You know, well, that seems mean, right? Jesus wants me to hate my mother and father? No, not at all, not at all. I want, I want to help you understand this. What Jesus is doing, he's calling us to a higher standard of love. Um, one of the things I tell my girls often, and uh, are they in here right now? Good. I tell my girls this often, um, that I love you like crazy. I love you so much. You can't even understand how much I love you. I told Emma, my youngest the other day, I said, Emma, if I will be happy if you marry a guy that loves you half as much as me. And she says, why do you just want somebody to marry me who loves, you, loves me half as much as you do? And I said, because if somebody, you can find someone that loves you even half as much as I do, you won't even be able to understand how much they love you, right? So what I'm trying to help her understand is, Man, my love for you is boundless. But I've also told my girls, I love your mom more than I love you. <laughs> Unapologetically. And I don't think that creates insecurity in them. I think it creates security in them. It helps them, again, feel comfortable that mom and dad love each other no matter what happens. They're, they're committed. Um, and so it's not about a competition. It's not about saying, I don't love you, but I love your mom. But it's about saying, man, I love you so much, but by comparison, your mom, you're not even in the same ballpark. 
Does that make sense? And so what Jesus says to us is not hate your mother and father, hate your brother and sister, hate your spouse. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is your love for me should be so supreme and so unrivaled that every other affection in your life should pale in comparison to your love for me. Every other affection you have in your life should, should be, should be a, a distant second to your affection for me. I had a woman last night after the service, she came up to me and she said, uh, man, I really struggle with that. And this is a woman who's been a Christian for a long time. She said, I really struggle with that because she, she said, I don't, I, don't, I don't really understand how do, I, how do I love my grandkids less or my husband less. And I go, no, 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 no. Don't love them less at all, okay? It's about making Jesus your supreme affection and your supreme love. Then no matter how much you love your family, you say, I'm not gonna put them above my affection and devotion and love for Christ. He will be the top affection in my life. And I said, and if you can do that, your affection for everything else will grow. You're gonna love your family even better when you put Jesus as your top affection. This is why Jesus says, if you don't love me supremely, then you can't be my disciple, you can't be my follower. Because you're never gonna love your spouse the right way. You're never gonna love your kids, your father, your mother the right way if you don't love me supremely. And if you don't love me so much that by comparison you hate them, then you can't be my follower. And so what Jesus does is he, he raises the standard. He draws this line in the sand and says, yes, we make commitments to Christ. Yes, you say a prayer, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. But it's, it's harder than that. It's gonna cost you more than that. It's gonna be more difficult than that in many, many ways. So when Jesus asks him the question, do you love me more than these? I, I believe he can be taken in two ways. Do you love me more than these people love me? But he could also be saying, do you love me more than you love these people? And if we ask the question, how many of you love Jesus? I would think everybody in the room, even by peer pressure, would raise their hand and go, yeah, I love Jesus. Right? If I took a poll of people watching online, most people would not say, no, I don't love Jesus. They go, yeah, I love Jesus. But if I said, do you love Jesus more than your spouse? Well, I don't know about that. What about your kids? Ooh. Right? And what Jesus is requiring of us is that he is our supreme affection. I love that Jesus made Peter say, his answer over and over and over again. I love that he asked the question and he made him say it over and over and over. Even though it grieved Peter, there's something about Jesus making Peter say it out loud. Peter, do you love me more than these? Jesus, you know that I love you. Do you love me? You know that I love you. Peter, do you? Do you love me? Jesus, you, you know all things. You know that I love you. It wasn't that Jesus needed to hear it. Jesus isn't an egomaniac. It was that Peter needed to hear himself saying it. This is his identity. This is who he is. He needed to be able to say, I love Jesus. I love you. I love you. I love you. He needed to hear himself saying this out loud 
to, to fortify and strengthen, augment something in his heart that he really is a man who loves Jesus. This is his identity. This is who he is. I'm not going to read this to you. It's in Song of Songs or Song of Solomon chapter 3. Um, <laughs> Song of, well, we need to do a series on Song of Solomon someday. Uh, that, that book gets interesting. In chapter 3, though, there's this, this, this poem that's written from the perspective of a bride, and she's looking for her groom, and she woke, has woken up in the middle of the night, and she's looking for him. He's not in the bed with her, and so she goes throughout the town looking, and this common phrase just recurs throughout the poem, whom my soul loves. And she keeps referring to her bride, or Jesus, as the one whom my soul loves. And it was almost like, like Peter's making this confession here. You are the one whom my soul loves. This is who I am. This is who you are to me. So Jesus was challenging Peter's love. The third thing is this, Peter was challenging, uh, Jesus was challenging Peter's identity. See, at this point, Peter probably identifies himself as a failure. Rightfully so, because he had failed. But Jesus saw so much more in him than this. In John chapter 18, after Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, he's taken uh, to be put on trial, and Peter follows along, and he kind of holds back a little bit, and he's in this courtyard, and he goes and he's warming himself by the fire, and he's standing around, he's kind of keeping an eye on the proceedings, and someone asks him, they say, hey, aren't you that one who's been traveling with a Galilean? He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Hey, you're one of the followers of Jesus. No, I don't, I don't, why would you, who, who, who? Jesus, I don't know who you're talking about. The third time, he denies Christ again, standing around this fire. The rooster crows, and one of the gospels says that at that point, Jesus and Peter made eye contact and looked at each other. And then it says Peter went out and wept bitterly. And it's interesting to me, because what we see in this interaction I mentioned this earlier, is this restoration process. It's this moment where Peter denies Christ three times, and three different times Christ comes to Peter, and he says, do you love me? As if, as if to erase the three denials, he lets him say, proclaim publicly his love for Christ three times. Three times Peter denies him. Three times he confesses his love for him. I don't think this was accidental. It seems to be the first intimate interaction between Peter and Christ after his resurrection. And so you know this must have been awkward. You know there's all this baggage from Peter, all these feelings, all these emotions. And when Jesus says, do you love me? Peter knows what he's asking. He knows what he's implying. And he feels this pressure. He feels this guilt. He feels this shame of what he's done and how he's done it. And when Peter's grieved, he's grieved because he doesn't understand what Jesus is really getting at. That Jesus is, is publicly restoring him, publicly bringing him back in. He's allowing him to, to amend for the public denials. But not only that, Jesus says, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Tend to my sheep. These are the things he says in response to Peter when Peter says, you know that I love you. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, hey, Peter, I want you to know something. I don't just forgive you, but I'm gonna restore you. 
you know what, you had a ministry, a public ministry with me, and you thought you'd lost that because of what you'd done, you thought you'd blown it, you thought you'd go back to fishing, but you know what, I didn't make you to be a fisherman, I meant you to be a, a shepherd. So that's why I'm sending you back out to feed my sheep. And not only am I gonna forgive you, but I'm gonna restore you. So three times Peter denied Christ. Three times Peter confesses his love for Christ. And three times Christ restores him to ministry. Restores him to the place that he should be in. Some of you today, you've blown it. You've done some things that you're so embarrassed of, you're so ashamed of. You think, man, I don't know if God could ever love me. He might let me into heaven, but man, just barely. Man, God could never use me in my life, I'm sure, because I've, I've blown it too much. I've gone too far. But God doesn't look at your failure. He looks at your future. I want to go back to verse 20, or verse 9 of chapter 21. We read this earlier. I want to come back to it again, though. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Um, have you ever walked outside in the summertime? Maybe somebody's crazy in the winter and you smell a neighbor cooking on like a grill. And all of a sudden in that moment, like the smell, and you're like, yes, Lord, Holy Spirit's calling me right now, telling me I need to cook a steak. I need a steak in my belly. Yes, Lord, Right? It's like everybody, you've got the gift of discernment in that moment, and you're like, yes, I know what the Spirit's saying, right? Something about smelling a certain type of food, man, the grill, charcoal, mm. Some of you are getting hungry right now. It's not lunchtime yet. It's interesting, because you know there's something actually physiologically going on in your body whenever this happens. Uh, so when you smell a smell, the neurons in your nose, at the top of your nose, they actually fire off a signal to your brain through the olfactory nerve. And the olfactory bulb takes that signal, processes it, and passes it back, uh, pa- passes it into your limbic system. And your limbic system plays a major role in controlling your mood and your behavior and emotion and your memory. And this is important because your sense of smell is one of your senses that's most closely associated with your memory. That's why you can smell something. Maybe there's a food that's cooking and it smells like, man, it reminds you of your granny's fried potatoes. That was me. And it can take you there in a moment. It transports you back there. I can remember as a kid growing up, I would wake up at my granny's house. And I would smell the the breakfast, the bacon and eggs. I'm getting teary-eyed over bacon and eggs right now. I would smell the bacon and eggs and the biscuits cooking in the other room, and that smell reminds me of Granny's house, reminds me of that feeling, that emotion of being there with her. It reminds me, it transports me. Maybe maybe you're, you're walking along and you pass someone, you smell a perfume that reminds you of somebody you used to know. Maybe for me, The smell of fresh cut grass reminds me of my dad. Just something about it takes me back to a place. What we see in this passage, verse 9, 
says when they got out on land, they saw charcoal fire. And if, you, if you've ever been around a fire pit before, you know that there's some smoke. And if you stay in there too long, you're, you're gonna smell like smoke. You're gonna walk away with that smell on you. And it's interesting because this word charcoal in the Greek is used twice in scripture. Two times, two times only. It's used once here in John 21, nine. It's also used in John 18, 18. And I referenced this earlier. It's when Peter goes to the courtyard and he warms himself by the charcoal fire. As he stands around and denies his savior three times, the very thing that he swore he would never do. I can't help but think the smell of that smoke must have stayed on him as he went and wept bitterly, as he went and lived with the shame of his moment and his worst failure, that smell must have been on him and it must have transported him. Every time he smelled it over the next few weeks, he thought about his failure, he thought about his shame. It reminded him of who he was, it reminded him of what he did and what he didn't do. And it transported him back to that place. But this is who our God is. See, when I said Jesus had everything waiting for him on the shore, Peter might have thought he needed breakfast, but it wasn't breakfast he needed. He needed redemption. And in this moment, he gets back, and I, I'm, I'm, this is conjecture, okay? This is extra biblical. But I'm imagining that he sits down next to this charcoal fire, and he smells the smell, and it's a reminder of who he is and what he's done. And Jesus takes this moment and he redeems it. And he said, you know what? This used to be the smell of failure, but it's not the smell of failure anymore. It's the smell of redemption. The smoke, it's not about you blowing it. It's not about you coming up short. This smoke is gonna remind you from here on that I've got a purpose and plan for your life. So this reminder of your worst possible moment, I'm gonna redeem it and I'm gonna remind you of the purpose and plan I have for you, Peter because I've got so much more for you than just to be a fisherman. I've got, I've got a plan for you to be a shepherd. And your past doesn't disqualify you from that. And this smoke is not gonna stay on you because I'm redeeming it. Some of us are walking around, living our lives, and we're doing just fine publicly, but we know we've got the smell of failure on us. We feel like we've disqualified ourselves from ministry. We feel like we've disqualified ourselves from God's purpose and plan because of something we've done. And I want you to know that that smell is not, shouldn't be a reminder of where you failed. God wants to redeem it to remind you of his future for you. It's no longer gonna be the smell of failure. It's gonna be the smell of redemption. God has something in store for you that you can't even imagine if you'll simply trust him in it. it's really simple for me to ask you these two things. Jesus is waiting on you with everything you need. Everything you need, Jesus already has in store for you. Will you come to him? And the other question is the one he asked. Jesus wants to restore you and redeem you. No matter what you've done, no matter how badly you failed, the question is, do you love him? If he was standing here today, he would ask you that, do you, do you love me? Not because he needs to hear the answer, but because you need to say, you know I love you. You are the one who my soul loves. 
Because Jesus is calling us to a standard of love that I think very few of us actually live up to, myself included. And he's inviting us into this because it will change us if we'll simply submit ourselves and walk in that way. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for loving us with a love that we can't begin to fathom or understand. Thank you for loving us in a way that's intimidating. Because when I think of how I love my wife and how I love my girls, it's hard for me to imagine loving anyone more than I love them. But God, thank you that you invite me into a relationship where I can love you so well and be loved by you so well that every other love in my life will fall short. So God, I pray for me personally, God, you would be the supreme love, the primary love of my life, the one whom my soul loves. And God, I pray every person in this place would be able to pray the same thing. God, I pray that there would be nothing and no one in my life that would vie for your affection that you would be number one. God, I pray for those that are here that don't know you. God, let today be the day they come to you, they trust you, that they see that everything they need, you have prepared for them. Let today be the day they surrender their lives to you. God, I pray for those that are here that are believers, they're Christians, but they've failed, like all of us have. And they feel like their failure has disqualified them from being used for your purposes and plans. God, I pray that we wouldn't believe the lie of the enemy and that, God, we wouldn't let the smell remind us of our failure, but, God, I pray that you'd redeem it and it would remind us of our future. So, God, minister here. Let your Holy Spirit truly be the comforter in this place. Know that your head bowed and your eyes closed and nobody's looking around. I just wanna ask if you're here today and you would say to me, Mel, I'm not really serving God. I'm not in a relationship with Jesus. But I know that because of my sin, there's a gap between God and I that I cannot bridge. But only Jesus can. So I want to surrender my life to Christ. I want to know God intimately. I don't want to begin my journey with him today. Or maybe I want to restart my journey with him today. If that's you, I'm not going to embarrass you or bring you forward. I just want to pray with you right where you're at. So if you're here today and you say, Mel, I want to be included in that prayer. I want to make Jesus Lord of my life. Would you be bold enough to slip your hand up where I can see it all over this place? You can put it right back down. Is there anyone you'd say, Mel, pray for me, today's my day. I wanna make Jesus Lord of my life. Pray for me. Yeah, thank you so much. Who else would say, Mel, pray for me. Today's my day, I wanna make Jesus Lord. I wanna surrender it all to him. Whether you raised your hand or not, I want you to pray this prayer with me out loud. Like I said earlier, in Romans it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So I want you to pray this with your mouth, but I want you to believe it in your heart. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me so much that you gave Jesus, your one and only son, to pay the price for my sins on the cross. I confess my sin and my need for a savior. Thank you that Jesus is alive and well today. Thank you that I get to be your child and that you love me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give God a round of applause today, can we?
Listen, if you prayed that prayer today, whether you raised your hand or not, Scripture tells us that you're a new creation. And we want to help you take the next step in your faith journey. And so if you prayed that with us and you meant it, uh, please take a moment to take the card out of the seat back in front of you. Fill out the side of the card that says salvation. And take it over to our information center when we finish here in just a minute. And uh, they're going to give you a new Bible. And in a couple of days, you're going to get an email or a letter from me just helping you take the next step. If you're watching online and you pray that prayer with us today, we want to help you as well. So if you're here in the Indian area, we're going to get you connected here at Summit. If you're somewhere throughout the United States or even the world and you pray that prayer with us, I would love for you to respond because we want to help you find a life-giving church in your area. So simply text the word SALVATION to the number 555-888. And when you do that, we're going to help you go further in your walk with Christ and begin to grow in your faith. So thank you so much for worshiping with us online. Here's what's going to happen right now. I'm going to pray a final prayer. And in just a moment, we'll be dismissed. And while I'm praying this final prayer, our, our prayer team's gonna join us up here at the front of this room, here at the, the front of the stage. And they're here and they're available for you. Uh, they wanna agree with you no matter what your need may be today. So as we dismiss in just a moment, if you would like someone to pray with you, maybe you're here today and you feel like that, that smell of, of, of some failures on your life, there's no shame in that. God wants to redeem that today. Maybe you're here today and you need a physical healing in your body. We believe God can do that. God wants to do that. So come find one of our prayer team members. Let them agree with you. And then in just a moment, we're going to be dismissed. If you feel like God is, is done with you, that's good. Um, when we're dismissed, please exit quietly so we don't disrupt any of the prayer that's going on in this room. And uh, if you're just one to sit in your seat and meditate on what God has spoken to you today, or if you want to come forward and kneel at one of these steps, uh, this room is available for that. So we just want to create an atmosphere of prayer so we can connect with God before we go today. So let me pray over you as our prayer team comes. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us with a love that we can't begin to understand. God, thank you for the people this weekend that have said yes to you, they've surrendered their hearts to you, their lives to you. Thank you, Lord, for the six people that have said yes to you, to your invitation, to your kingdom. God, I pray that their lives would be transformed from this day forward. But God, I pray we would walk in love as we leave here today. God, I pray that we would be able to answer emphatically, yes, Lord, you know that I love you when you ask us the question, do you love me? But God, I pray that we wouldn't just simply love you with a love that's convenient for us or a love that makes sense for us, but God, I pray that we would love you in the way you deserve to be loved. So God, I pray you would be the supreme affection of our hearts as we walk out of here today. I pray that we would make you our top love and I pray that we would love everyone else better because of that. So God, I pray that we would walk in that as we walk into work tomorrow, as we walk into classes, as we uh, go to lunch today, as we go about our business, God, let us walk in your love and let that make the difference. Lord, we love you and we thank you and it's in your name we pray, amen. I love you more than you know, and I'm so honored that I get to be your pastor. God bless you. Have a great week.